Hi, this is Bianca Stone and welcome to the Odin Psyche podcast. I will be talking on the podcast today with the poet, artist, and writer Ed Steck about his new book, A Place Beyond Shame, published by Wonder. And I'm also talking with Ben Pease, who helped do the layout on the book or did the entire layout on the book so beautifully. It's truly an art object with full color images, both stills from films and sculptures done by Ed Steck himself. The description of Ed Steck's A Place Beyond Shame is, it's a long-form poetic exploration of autobiographical trauma. Place Beyond Shame is an excavation of memory linked to topography, sight, and sight, the bleak expanse of plagued rural landscapes, addiction and terror, the house or the home, and a personal archive of horror, adult, and exploitation films. A Place Beyond Shame follows a father and son as they transform into ghoul and son of ghoul. They dub films to tape, loiter in the woods, and search for UFOs amid the shock and horror of secrecies hidden behind the walls of the everyday. If when you are reading this book and the horrors become too real, repeat to yourself, it's only a book, it's only a book, it's only a book. Kate Durbin says of Ed Steck's book, A Place Beyond Shame is a harrowing, original, and endlessly surprising book, shape-shifting in our hands as we read it. It is as scary and wondrous as the horror films it not only references but writes into itself. The horror genre has long been a space to explore the terrors of childhood, the way a parent be can become a ghoul, to finally confess in a scream, not a whimper, all the secret things we've hidden under the bed. This book reminds me it is in the darkness, not the light, that we finally face ourselves. Ed Steck is the author of An Interface for Fractal Landscape, The Garden, Mountain Forge Serviceberry Systems, and others. His work has been performed and exhibited nationally and internationally, including for the Brooklyn Rail, the Los Angeles Museum of Contemporary Art, High Desert Test Sites, and more. He is a recipient of grants from the Fund for Poetry, Pittsburgh Greater Art Council, and the Pittsburgh Foundation, and he lives in Pittsburgh. Please enjoy my conversation with Ed and Ben, and be sure to check out the show notes to see how you can order Ed's new book, A Place Beyond Shame, and hold it in your hands, because it really does make a difference to have the actual book in your hands and to support these small presses. Wonder is one of my favorite presses, and I'm so pleased to be able to talk to Ed um, about his new project. I very much see like film as kind of little compartments of time, time traveling. I really kind of uncovered that um, working on this piece. Your book, Ed, deals with the problem of like trying to find a film that will let you peer through to what you're, you need. Being so exposed to an emotional response to something that it just kind of, you know, it becomes normal, it becomes boring almost. And I think a lot of the times, like, I've watched, you know, some of these movies probably over 20 different times, um, over and over again, because I, I mean, in that way, it was avoidance, you know. Hi, Ed Steck. Welcome to the Odin Psyche Podcast. Hello. Thank you for having me. I'm so thrilled you're here. And joining us today, too, is Ben Pease. Hi, Ben. Hello. 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 
Are we going <clears> to <throat> tell everybody that Fama's here or Fama, are you just creeping? Ben Fama is also here. <laughs> a silent uh, observer. Yeah. Silent. <laughs> Ed, you start in the opening of the book with this stark warning to readers. It's so stark, this advisory warning, as to seem impossible to even go forward. Yet this seems like a classic tactic uh, in 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 this uh, horror genre. Turn back, turn back, uh, you the faint of heart, when one is clearly enticed to go forward. But this horror film trope, and, and the, which is playful, seemed to align to me with the sort of Dante esque journey into hell one must go forward even if it's not advisable and there is enormous resistance i thought it was really interesting too that you evoke the name of this place this place of shame mm -hmm. i assume as the one that we're entering or perhaps already in as a chateau a house a frame even in which these horrifying and unbearable fears are contained. So I would love to talk just a bit about place, how the tactile, the phenomenological event of objects and the topography of space is important to this book right out of the get-go. I mean, right in the title. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I, the place... Um... For a long time, uh, working on this book, I was trying to figure out how to like get it to like a place in my mind, I guess. And um, it, you know, prior to the book, it existed in many different aspects, like many different forms, like gallery shows and performances, and um, you know, limited edition books and photographs, and I. I got to this point where with the subject matter of the book being like my own life in a lot mm -hmm. of ways that I needed it to find a place of its own so that I could pretty much, I don't even know, confront it, encounter it. You know, I think it's much, you know, it's much more of an encounter, like walking with it on this path to a place beyond shame and you're going to start from somewhere and that place is going to be you know either the place where it actually happens or the place kind of i hate to say the word memorialized but the place that was like the memorial for you know whatever this um trauma or the subject matter of, of the book is um i think that like for this i mean i can talk about it in very concrete ways <clears throat> where it's like the places are, I do this in the book too, where I kind of list things about the places, but you know, the place is a house, um, the place is a movie theater, the place is a basement. I'm getting like wild. Well, can I, no, you're not really not. It's can I follow up Ed, yeah. um, talking about lobby cards and also as the book is kind of posited as a movie going experience. Yeah. I, let me, let me respond to Bianca fully first, because it's, mm -hmm. I think it's really good question but i feel like there's like four or five questions it was I sorry to, i want to answer well, so i'm trying to go one by one here um, well it's because you do you do say like like it's almost like don't go forward don't enter here all right 
to warn and and then so there's that part of the sort of observation on my part as a reader but then also looking i mean you do like call it a chateau you do like call it a place a house Mm -hmm. and well of course it made me think of the therapeutic frame in which one does have like a container in which to put all the parts that have been scattered and even when you started responding to the question you were like well i had these sort of gallery showings i had photographs i had chat books i had scraps of poems so i mean there's the objects that you make right it's a very multifarious in inquiry because there's mm-hmm. the objects that you made out of the immaterial trauma and maybe in a way so and then within the actual writing you evoke objects right away mm-hmm. you evoke place right away i think with the warning <clears throat> one of the kind of sort of kind of two functions and i think what um you know p's brought up about the lobby cards and the structure of it is that it is like going to basically want it to be like the entire experience of going to see a double feature in a um drive-in but of course you know the drive-in is also the place of about it um and with the warning that's like kind of a tagline that's on a lot of trailers or attached to like these kind of um otherwise b-movie reels you know yeah they felt very b-movie yeah it totally is (laughs) and very much like you know you must have this barf bag to enter like i actually have um in this room i have like an original barf bag from the mark of the devil um and you know it says on it this vomit bag and the price of one admission will enable you to see the most horrifying film ever made but you have to have the barf bag to go into (laughs) can you imagine if your poetry book came with a barf bag like how how (laughs) self-destructive well i mean speaking of self-destruction i did i mean well i did this uh, like launch at the bookstore fungus that i own and Poem. and the response that i got from a lot of the readers is that you know it made them feel ill um one oh my person God. was starting to as they said spiral and they had to leave early um wow and it was a very uh communal response which i was very uh proud of there's a lot of repetition in the book because it's um bianca was thinking this from the, like the beginning of the question that you asked like this warning and and like getting to this place where it came out of uh i finally figured out what that place was and how to get this book in a form through uh imaginal exposure therapy which was like uh for cptsd where you have to relive the same kind of event over and over again in different ways it was kind of a very full sensory experience where i would write this over and over read it out loud over and over record it over and over listen to myself over and over sit with the sensory experiences that were happening at this time over and over and over again. It was very physical. It was very like, you know, I was throwing up, <laughs> I was losing sleep, but to the point where it was, you know, kind of trance-like and it was, you know, when I'm working through this part and I get to the lobby cards, which is a very, you know, kind of uh, lobby cards used to like promote films lobby cards used to be put into theaters as in like sets of like five six seven twelve um and they would just be images um from the film that were meant to like entice you to see them 
So it would be often or not the most revealing parts of the film just printed on these like large kind of glossy things. Mm-hmm. Um, can I, Ed, can I just ask to, so I can visualize like, were they on like little poster stands in the lobby or how would they, would they be handed out or? Um, they would be like on the counter when you would walk in, like going up to the box office because it's, you know, back then you would go to the box office and there would be like four or five people sitting there in lines and, you know, you would pick up your free stuff and a lot of times there's lobby cards. Um, yeah, they were free, handed out, sometimes put on display by movie theaters too and just kept there. So about the title, A Place Beyond Shame, you have so many incredible lines about shame. Is the tenacity of shame a portal of deconstructing the blockages of pleasure? One feels in this book complications of shame, its multifarious nature that is as complex as love and hate, as emotions, but also as some element of the body. You know, that shame feels very contained in the body. The book seems to to want to define shame in as many ways as possible, almost maybe as in a way to un- uncover shame, hoping to understand it, to go beyond it. You know, on page 34, shame is acceleration committed by the violence of others. Um, I've been thinking a lot about shame myself. Uh, I, you know, also working on a book about the echoes of trauma and the metapoetics that come into psychotherapy and poetry. I'm having a sort of battle about shame because so much of therapy seems to be addressing and getting shame out of the way so you can get to the real stuff and facing shame. And then, uh, then you're sort of, but then writing about it feels shameful too. Like writing about that experience, like that for me, like I'm battling a lot of like shame around like sharing my like experience with shame. Shame about shame. Yeah. (laughs) And so when I keep being like, oh, and I keep, you know, when I talk, it's like one part of me is like, I have this like intellectual understanding of shame as like being helpful and not helpful. And like, I understand that like shame hides the truth. And like indicates some sort of truth that's being like manipulated but one still is fucking plagued with it i don't know i just tell me about the title i guess like shame to for me to get to understanding what shame was for me and what that importance of shame was for writing this book like, I feel like I was emotionally dependent on shame for a very long time. <laughs> mm. And I feel like that was very much um, something that I wanted to put in the book when we're kind of getting into this, like, meaty or, like, juicy or, like, bloody part of the book where, like, the shame is all out on the table, right? It's in the double feature part. Like, and it's just, like, everything is coming out. And in the second part of it, where it's like, okay, the shame is there. What is like, what is the function of it? And what is the function of the shame in terms of writing this, this piece? And it was like, well, if I have had these kind of, you know, you talked about it being the book being like a journey, a search. And in the lobby cards, I want to you know express that this is like, we're going together on this path, right? 
me, whoever me, his son of Ghoul, Ghoul, and the reader, the audience, we're all going together. And I think shame is such a very like personal and interdefined thing that's just mixed up in every kind of, uh, you know, all kinds of experiences, and it can go anywhere. You know, shame is is so, you know, it just pops up in the strangest places where it's just this association with shame, um, and it may not even be, um, may not even be like with what is happening in front of you. Um, and so for me to get kind of like to think about what is that place beyond that? Like, I don't even know if we get there in a the book. I don't think that we do, but it's yeah. like we're going it's, it's towards it. opening the possibility up that there is yeah. a place. And, um, and in like, if one think about it in like terms of the double feature, there's some, hmm, this is, this didn't, I don't know. There's come, there's some kind of like, talk about cathartic but watching films specifically made about shame and existing with the shame and using it and understanding it and even kind of you know living with it um to the point where it becomes the shame becomes almost boring it comes comes mundane it becomes this kind of fence to keep you away from what it is that you actually want to to be, what you want to encounter. Um, and like shame is powerful. Um, shame keeps you in one place. And so, you know, for this book, it's like the path to a place beyond shame and to keep going. And I basically stole the title from an adult film directed by Sharon Mitchell and Fred Lincoln. Um, Sharon Mitchell is one of my, um, just, I really look up to her. She's a great, um, Great, great performer. Great. Um, she's just very cool. Uh, and she directs adult films? Or, she, or she, well, I mean, she did and she produced and she, I mean, in interviews I've read with her, or listened to with her, she said that she's basically done every single um, aspect of production in an adult film. Um, mm. She's, uh, I, I suggest listening to her interview on the Rialto Report. Um she's really great um so she i'm intrigued i'll definitely check this out (laughs) yeah and the film is called a place beyond shame not a place beyond shame it's place beyond shame and it's um about seka who is one of she's a great performer um she is going she's confronting traumatic experiences and she goes to a therapist and does kind of basically in a a really intense on-site physical form of imaginal imaginal exposure therapy um, to get to this place beyond shame. Uh, I have a signed poster from Seca and she wrote to me, um, you know, there's some inscription on it. That's like, you know, for you to go to a place beyond shame because I asked her to write that. Oh my God. That's that's amazing. <laughs> I mean, I'm just like, yeah, I mean, yeah, in yeah. terms of like the fantasy window, yeah, I, I <laughs> there it is. You know, like that would not be an actual like therapeutic model for the real world, but in the film world, right, in the film yes. world, like you have the fantasy, A, but you also have a message, like, right? You do also have like, actually it is, 
telling us something about the reenactment and what the reenactment is and what fantasy is. Actually, it's a meta conversation about fantasy itself. Right. right. And, and of course, you know, I think about it a lot too, you know, and I, I have a moment in my chat book too, where I mention a porn star. Well, it's like when you start thinking more about what trauma is and re reenactment is and how wrapped up the sexual is in it, mm -hmm. you start looking at porn really differently. Mm -hmm. um, and that can be like super disturbing. Um, but also I think, you know, hearing you talk about the more like nuanced scene of adult films and the more artistic and interested people involved in the production of it and the creation of it and the investigation of that art form, uh, the more we see the potentiality of taboo being talked about and addressed and brought into into a space where we can interact with it mm -hmm. without feeling shame right so right. who who made these taboos about what what's moral to watch and what isn't and, and what's moral to explore and what isn't and why mm -hmm. are these rules in place and are they serving us i guess is is the biggest question and so yeah i mean um, a lot of the the film and the book production at this time like all about kind of testing obscenity laws and um you know our obscenity or current obscenity laws are defined by um, the united states government's reaction to these films and also to the books that were published at this time it's really kind of wild to 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 dig into and read about so you have this persona self or speaker in the book, and it's interesting talking about your very specific therapy that you went through where you're writing down and enacting your trauma over and over again as a kind of character. So kind of this interesting meta exploration. You've already were you're writing, writing a lot about this in yeah. imaginative ways, as you say, is described. But the name of the character speaker rather in the book is son of ghoul you begin with stage direction in the quote henge the henge another place that is very significant in the book a hiding place surrounded by dense forest across from a medical park as you describe you list much of what is on this set of this film that we begin in or show and i love the idea that many of these objects were perhaps integral to your kind of therapy within this autobiographical trauma that's being explored. Um, and I, 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 I love this weaving in of the real, so-called real, um, with the fictional and, uh, you know, creating this kind of mythology around it, um, in which to examine and deal with it equally, you express scenes and photographs, visual photographs. Um, so, so we see a bit about this overlap between memory and fiction. Is that, is that a natural, I mean, there's something so natural about that in poetry anyway. Um, I don't know. It, it, tell, tell me about how you feel about that overlap between fiction and and truth fiction and truth i think that a lot of it for a long time like dealing with that experience that trauma or whatever um a lot of it is kind of conjecture like did this happen right right <laughs> was it something that happened um and um 
there is mythologizing there. And I think there's also this like way of kind of denying that that is the truth of the matter through the mythology and saying like, this is just a character in a book. This is just a book. This is just a book. This is mm-hmm. only a movie. Remind yourself. Right. No. Um, but in reality, that's not true. Um, and everything that's in the kind of fictional aspects of it that I'm basically saying, don't believe it. This is only a movie. This is only a book. It's um, kind of another way to just conv- like constantly remove oneself from you know, if we want to talk about it in terms of like fiction and fiction writing, it's a way of constantly removing oneself from um, the primary, secondary sources that you're using to compose it. Um, but mm-hmm. in the actual engagement with those primary and secondary sources outside of the fiction, you know very much that that is source material. Um, and of course, there's going to be things that uh, kind of create like I don't know, distortion between, you know, I don't know, author and speaker and how that comes out when it's becoming like a printed book or whatnot. And I think a lot of the times for me is to keep it for this book, like nothing, like, like, you know, a lot of my other writing is very like lots of distortion, um, lots of different layers, but for this one, it's pretty stripped down. I, um, I kind of wanted it to be, you know, just what it was. Um, and to engage in it in a way where when it was getting abstract, when it was getting into that kind of like theoretical space that a lot of my other writing does is I bring it back and it's almost like, no, this isn't where it is. Like you're not at this place. You're not at the last house on the left. You are here, you know, you're in this space that's very real. And it's, it's kind of, it also shows like kind of the error in these like metaphors that are throughout the book, or I don't even know if they're metaphors, maybe like aphoristic impressions of, you aphoristic know, I watched this film, I watched this film. It's just like constantly creating like blockages for you yeah. to actually get to what is the root of what's happening, even though it's said, not said, but it's written throughout the book over and over again, like almost from the first page on, you know? I was going to say in, in my reading of it though, I, I do like to get a sense of where I feel the writer is in relationship to the speaker. Is it like, are they making a kind of coy doppelganger or is this someone that's clearly not them? Or I read it as being for the most part, you as the the writer and the speaker were pretty closely aligned. Even. Yes. (laughs) Um, Yeah. But I also think that there's, with the writer, I mean, I don't know. I think that's maybe up to reading experience. Because mm-hmm. I'll read it and I'm like, that's not me. <laughs> that's right. Son of Ghoul, you know. And right. when I read it and perform it live, it's Son of Ghoul. That's come up in conversations with people about the book where they're like, it was kind of, there's a kind of confusion about it. And I, I, I like that. And I like that, you know, books have various different ways of being read um and i think that they can be you know read various different ways over various different times there are things in that book though that i feel like are kind of permanent um time stamps i guess <laughs> you know like the films with the years um it keeps it all in one kind of time frame like yeah i, I think i only include like one 
film that I've like watched in the last like five years or something. I, I noticed that. I was like, everything's in the late twentieth century except like Inland Empire. Yeah, <laughs> Inland, I think it's like Inland Empire and Mandy or something. Yeah. Um, but because those were the movies that my dad or Ghoul, yeah, on a Ghoul or myself, um, dubbed off of TV, and that was like a pretty weekly practice for us. So. Well, that's. I mean, the name of this fictional self, which, you know, I've been thinking so much about this fictional self and the persona of the self and the performance of the self just in general, which has been so highlighted for me, not only through poetry, but emphasized the more I investigate the self through therapy and memory and that whole idea. So I'm, I'm very interested in plumbing that as we go, mm-hmm. but having an actual name of the of the speaker self in the book son of ghoul was so significant because it's complicated by the fact that son of ghoul right the the speaker themselves doesn't even have a name in this book it is the father's name as if their whole identity is tied up with the father which of course is such an is the backbone i think of the book right is is this the trauma uh with the father directly named ghoul um, which is, of course, an evil spirit or phantom who like feeds on the dead. Um, yes. <laughs> in, in most, I, I think, like that's pretty much what ghouls do, right? Mm. Um, Rob Graves, eat the dead yes. people. They uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, um, I, the son of ghoul, ghoul and son of ghoul, kind of has, you know in the lineage of horror films and stuff, you know, you'll have Dracula, son of Dracula, daughters, right. of, I mean, da- you know, daughters of Dracula, um, Dracula's dog, which is like obvious, honestly, one of like the films my dad and I would like watch and like kind of crack up about. Um, and I tried to rewatch it recently. It was just like so unbearably unwatchable. Um, Even hearing the title is kind of unbearable. Yeah, the full title is Zoltan or Zoltar, Dog of Dracula, Hound Dracula, Hound of Dracula. But oh, okay, they that's kind of better. Yeah. Dracula, dog. <laughs> um, but I'm my, I'm also I'm not. My father's name is Ed Steck too. So oh shit, um, or was and but. You know, I'm not a junior or anything, but right. we do share um, the same name. And right. so even at the end of the book, you know, I put a dedication to Ed Stack. Um, he was ghoul just as much as I am son of ghoul and he is son of ghoul. So it's very, it's, you know, simultaneously kind of like a very real thing. And this is going back to what we were saying before. It's very real dedication it's very real lineage but at the same time it's commenting on this uh trope and form of the horror film especially these kind of like campy like 40s and 50s films um that kind of teeter off into like lawrence and the hardy meets frankenstein i think it's time for us to read a poem ed could you start with one of the opening poems yeah i'll start with um talking about the lobby cards I'll start with a lobby card, which, um, you know, I'll do the first two, which would be the Henge and um, the Last House on the Left or the Last House on Dead End Street or Last House on the Edge of the Park or whatnot. So these are two lobby cards. Lower Hontown, Pennsylvania, 
crepuscular late June. Aquatint sky, dry soil, dense greenery. Son of Ghoul and others march into the forest, accessing a roadside hidden path. An opening in the forest appears. Painted sign reads The Henge, a hiding place surrounded by dense forest across from a medical park. A lean-to, a circle of stones around a burn pit, a stack of sex magazines wrapped in newspaper in a hole under a brush pile, crude etchings scratched into dirt, curving air sounds rumble as cars bomb the old hill outside, trees flutter in quiet wind, the characters mock the outside in cruel, sardonic gestures, surrounding items Empty beer cases, book bags, skateboard parts, stolen retail products, litter, lit ablaze, aluminum foil, a paper towel roll, a lighter, Robitussin. An audio recording plays over characters burning items, crafting household items to use drugs, drinking Robitussin. Recording. Do you, hey, do, oh no, ha ha, wait, do you remember that one? Don't, I can't anymore. Son of ghoul. Did you hear something? Thought I heard something over there. Older man and older woman walk into the henge, intoxicated. Older man is tall, thin, gray, in khakis and starchy white button-up, smoking a cigarette. Older woman is small, stout, dressed in a loose-fitting sweatshirt, curly brown hair, small glasses. Quiet, tinny sound. Older man watches son of ghoul pee against a tree. Older woman is topless. Older man pulls a gun. Son of Ghoul, these drunk old people. The stage is quiet after older man and older woman exit. The characters shuffle their items around. Paper towel roll, Robitussin, various surrounding items. Burning trash settles to a dim light. Friend of Son of Ghoul, to be performed with appropriate regional slang and dialect, dependent on site of performance. You should leave when a gun appears. They can shoot you, you know, by accident or on purpose. Trafford, Pennsylvania. Mid-morning, Christmas Eve. Slate-colored sky, hills, water. A road. A gravel driveway leads to an old house. Brush settles, laps wind. The driveway is overgrown with scrubby grass, jagger bushes. Trees hang sparsely in the web of winter. Squirrels everywhere. A gray 1992 Nissan Maxima pulls up the drive. Clouded light smatters leaf shadow on windshield. An old house with foxed, exhaust-speckled aluminum siding appears. Two blanketed windows face out above a garage filled with errant cherry master machines. Dirt walk pathing. Dirt... <laughs> Dirt walking path leads to entrance at side of the old house. Screen door hangs askew from frame. Son of Ghoul exits the car, walks the path, knocks on the side door. Ghoul answers the door. Handgun pointed through the screen. Dog runs into woods. Ghoul allows Son of Ghoul to enter after confirming identity. Ghoul. Son of Ghoul, you have returned. Ghoul and Son of Ghoul enter kitchen. Cans, mud clumps, emptied cartons, prescription bottles, drug paraphernalia, litter. Ghoul and Son of Ghoul walk into the living room. Ghoul sits in recliner. Son of Ghoul stands. 
Stunted light only penetrates the room in lengthening slivers. A stereo, a television, a bag of dog food, a folding card table, pills, foil, lighter. Vinegary egg odor permeates the room. Ghoul. Are you looking for the heroine? Son of Ghoul. No, it's Christmas Eve. An audible emptiness cauterizes the room. The immobility of light touches leaves every object. Mid-morning passes into early afternoon without event. Ghoul falls asleep. Son of Ghoul exits. I love how distant it feels from emotion. It's mm. like our most difficult things to write about. You know, people often struggle with, okay, how do I write about this most traumatic relationship? Right. Um, this person who evokes so much feeling in me that I basically, my whole life <laughs> is trying to articulate that feeling, right? So, oh, 100%, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I love... I love the way that you found in, right? There, there's this sense that why do we make books? And certainly why do we make poetry books? Right. If not to find a way in to make effable, the ineffable event of, of, of relationships and experience. Um, of course, there's this heightened observation of the world. It's the world of memory right of the of the location where the father and son um lived dwelled together um mm -hmm. but also it feels kind of current right it feels like we're it does feel like we're sitting in a movie theater watching it and sitting and looking at objects in the world in your life in your life now right. um, well, yeah i um i think the distance something i mean honestly i feel like the distance and like the distance between the reading and what the reader is reading I guess if that makes any sense is has always been something that I've tried to work on you know whether if it's something that I'm writing about with like interfaces and some computer fantasy landscape or if it's writing about <clears throat> this very like volatile um harmful possibly dangerous memory to re-tap into yeah i kind of thought of it in this way where it was like well if i can write these kind of like sometimes pur <laughs> purposeful and like incredibly like emotionless texts then why can't i do it about this thing that i have avoided having an emotion about for like almost the entirety of my life right and and i got to this point and i i was you know in therapy and doing the imaginal exposure therapy and it kind of clicked to me that like the only way to for me to do this therapy and to write this book is to just kind of remove my emotions from it and to write the yep. facts like almost like I was writing a police report right like seriously just like remove like removing myself from every single thing having these lists having these objects having these you know and then you know having these memories or or having these like accounts or photos images and then being able to use those as almost like doorways back into it. And there are some, you know, very, uh, you know, very intense emotional uh, revelations in that, in the, in, in the book. I guess. Revelations is a weird word. I don't know if I meant that, but. Um, I think revelations is good. I mean, we stumble upon the revelation in the poem. <laughs>
as we move forward in the book, right, and then there's these photographs that also feel somewhat detached. There's a self-portrait of Son of Ghoul in a, in a it was a, a mask of um, Jason, right? It's Michael Myers. Oh, Michael Myers, right. Okay. You're right. Of course, Jason's the hockey mask. Also, thinking about the in the lobby cards, there's so just there's like smoke in the foreground. There's the pile of leaves, and then there's a a different mask, kind of lying in that pile. Yeah, I'll be honest. I chose a mask because it kind of looked like my dad. Mm, Damn. Um, (laughs) I uh, was really intrigued, kind of by the uh, markings on it. It was real kind of corny. There's another mask that's actually on permanent. It's now like a permanent installation in our backyard. Nice. Um, that's from this book. And right now the masks are on uh, on view at Fungus with the photos. That's awesome. Well, yeah. So the, yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt you again, but the, the, I consider them sculptures. If that sculptures. Okay. Yeah. That makes a lot more sense because they, they're photographs of sculptures. Mm-hmm. Um, like pantyhose. And, and well, the right, panty. The pantyhose are really interesting too because in think in me looking at the opening of this book as these sort of like dismembered body parts mm-hmm. and the pantyhose being you know it, it looks like yeah like you can kind of see in in one like teeth and blood mm-hmm. um but I was thinking about trauma and dismemberment um and how that's obviously such a massive part of the work to sort of like take all those pieces that have been of memory and and sense of self and even one's own body and sort of compartmentalize them and chop them up and like put them all over the place and then again 100%. back to this idea of like finding a place to put it all back together again exactly. the rememberment rememberment indeed and then you know what i could not remember it and they stayed just dis- dismembered um and they've been in my garage, like where I, I took these photos, um, and in my backyard since until they made their way to. to... I bet they're just getting more more beautiful. They are. <laughs> they are. Yeah, well, I mean the. Um, oh, oh, sorry. Go ahead, please. Oh, I was going to say that the I feel like you're using the how you describe the lobby card in some way of they are giving you a piece of the film to come. Um, and yeah. even with that, the the son of ghoul part, when you said that thing about like, I spent all this time not thinking about it, that's kind of how it's initially given to us. Are you looking for the heroine? No. And later we get the full version. Mm. Mm-hmm. So we get to see a sort of growth. Very nice. I, yeah, the pieces in the lobby cards that really, you know, and this is like another thing is like a lot of this stuff is like so like i don't know and i'm also like a collector of like horror movie stuff so all of it's like very limited (laughs) you only have a piece of the thing or you have like 20 pieces out of it and um it's i really like that you brought that word pieces because my initial title for the book was pieces Mm. and um it was you know in reference to this film pieces (laughs) that i love a lot and the tagline for the film is it's exactly what you expect it to be or it's exactly what you think it is. And it's just like this very kind of like confusing mishmash um, horror film. The bulk of the book is comprised of two poems that are running on parallel tracks side by side in the Westmoreland County double feature section. 
um, it, it took a minute for me to figure out what was happening, right? So to me, it was one poem, maybe, and I and I wasn't sure which one was the title, right? So there was this uncertainty going into it. So we have this 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 long poem that really is the bulk of the book, and we were talking before about the sort of detached list-like opening poems. Um, the strange sculpture photos that are sort of paving the way towards the story or the narrative. You bust open a little bit more with that like revelatory emotional like experience that we are brought in with you on. A room has three walls. A room has four walls. A room has 1,000 walls and some dreamt worlds. Some dreamt worlds make you kick at the only wall that holds you in place. Some dreamt worlds hold you until you are the only wall you need. Some dreamt worlds are occupied only by walls. In some dreamt worlds, you find a number of recognizable sites modified by chronological variables. Other worlds come in boxes. Other worlds are limited editions of known worlds. Other worlds contain dormant dreamt worlds unlocked only when meeting itself along a looping orbit in the psychochronos, a co-virtual co-reality projected shared timeline between eyeball and image that is able to host moments, microtime, infinitesimal spans of time. Sometimes there are infinitesimal spans of time. I watch night I watch Phantasm 1979 at a time when the day won't start. A time when the day won't start is the frozen present graspable, inexplicably tangent in its ability to not begin. It exists in untimely slippages in the logic of sense, when catered images untether from definitive status to reshuffle associative bonds. Intervals of slippage in the stalled process of beginning, it exists in elongated moments of the frozen present, during the droll, slow-moving intake of new images untethered from chronological urgency. Untethered from chronological urgency. <laughs> Hell yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> well, I, I I love that so much because in terms of talking about trauma and memory in general, even without having trauma being the word that we use to talk about <laughs> memory, there is, I guess, a disruption in how we think about fact, the chronological order of things. So the phenomenon of what happened in the past keeps happening in the present. What does that mean? We have to go back to the past to make the past stop happening in the present. But, you know, all, all these things that get sort of undone by um, examining memory in such an intense way. Uh, reshuffle associative bonds. Reshuffle. But that hold on. But that phrase, when catered images untethered from definitive status to reshuffle associative bonds. So there's like, you're going th like every time you're going through these catered images, and there's not some place you can kind of neatly organize them. They're constantly in flux. It seems constantly in flux, constantly moving. But I think like shuffle, you know, I think t for me in this moment, um, like shuffling, untethered, slow moving. So even though these things are untethered, you know, they're slow moving. Um, it's almost like you can watch them shuffle in place. And it, it, there's like an, uh, kind of like, I hate to continuously say, continuously say this word, but like ambient 
interchange between like whoever's experiencing this or whatever's experiencing this. Um, does that make sense? No, ambient interchange <laughs> in the associative. Let me slow it down. So I think yeah. about what I said is like ambient interchange. So in terms of the book, catered images, or in terms of this poem, I think catered images would be images from the selection of not only the films that are referenced here, but also, like Bianca says, the, the memories that are kind of like appearing and that you're you're working with or you're seeing kind of have new... Um, you're seeing new engagements with them. You're defining them differently. They're un, you know, untethered, untethered from where this definitive status was before. You can see them differently. Um, and in Is that way, it's like you're, you're becoming like this reshuffling of like associative bonds. You know, there's kind of two things happening here where you're reshuffling the associative bonds. So maybe at this point in my life, I don't necessarily think about Phantasm 1979 as this you know, horrific funeral home experience where there's like no, no way to return. Um, and I, I have no longer, you know, kind of broken from those associative bonds of that image to whatever that trauma might be. Um, but there's also kind of a wordplay thing there with like associative and disassociative or you know, mm -hmm. dissociating, um, where sometimes you can't trust that. Like, it's like, is that a real untethering or is it like, Am I still kind of denying that that's the actual source of it, I guess, if that makes sense. I know we're speaking very abstractly here. But. Well, I mean, it, I, it's almost teetering on sounding a little bit like cognitive behavioral therapy, reorienting oh, totally. the associations you have that are seen as bonds, bonding you to always associating the same thing with that thought or that exactly. scene or that image, right? So. Exactly. And it's like, how is it that like, and this happened to me by like, happened for me, I guess, by continuously kind of denying, not denying an emotional response. I think that's, that's totally wrong. But being so exposed to an emotional response is something that it just kind of, you know, it becomes normal, it becomes boring almost. And I think a lot of the times, like I've watched, you know, some of these movies probably over 20 different times oh, um, wow. over and over again, because I, I mean, in that way it was avoidance, you know, but it was also becoming so much like, I've seen this so many times that at this point, like, I don't care if, you know, Leatherface puts somebody on a hook or something, you know, you know, this, this graphic display of violence isn't um isn't something that i could kind of just and this i think is the ambient part is ambiently suppress my experiences or you know ambient and if we're going to talk about it as, as the speaker or ambiently suppress the experiences or memories of son of ghoul while watching these films oh. i love that line no walls exist in this dreamt world, only manufactured barriers to disrupt connectivity. Each window into this world portrays the symptoms of prevention to universal linkage. I was reminded in this part of the world of the unconscious, having a link to that universal world of the unconscious too, 
or the metaphysical like shared space of archetypal unconscious mm. material and each window in i thought of course of the therapeutic frame here but it, there's the window in the film as well offers insight into symptoms and i think we were talking about symptoms mm. already here that prevent a connection that really prevent connection with the self their emotions and with with the universal unconscious and of course in relationships happening right now um from that reading i kind of have a question for you is that cool okay Um, (laughs) okay i mean is do you feel film film is a place for that to safely happen or i don't know if safely is the right word um for what to happen for one to be to be exposed or to I guess rectify with one's trauma through repeated images of fantasy I think film and I think film of Mm. as art right so I think it's kind of a question of what art does for us um but film is really unique I think it's an in its immersive experience so and I thought a lot about that in, in terms of how you've structured your book and how in the ending of the book you advise the reader to read it at night as if they're dr- at a drive-in movie and having these cards to begin it, of course, as if you're walking into the theater, then entering the theater and then leaving the theater, right? So there's the immersive experience of film to interact and face you scenes. Well, can I say too, Ed, I feel like the book also offers us two different ways to interact with film. And they're they're shown by the two different films. And a lot of them in When a Day Won't Start, one, we just have, I watched The Abominable Snoring. We don't see anything, that's, that's all we're given. And then on the When a Day Won't Start, two, we have like Cry for Cindy, director Anthony Spinelli, a 1976, a gloomy, grim, and foreboding depiction of a tragedy defined by shame the corruption of oppression depression and suicide i take the the difference between these two even though you're not giving us your internal like interpretation or journey in this in the right hand film you're giving us more about them so we can enter into it Mm. and i took that as the left hand film is one where you're in a closed loop you're the films are passing through you. And in the right-hand one, the films are perform are helping you perform a catharsis that is is necessary. That's the function of the sequel, I feel like sometimes. It's almost like the Volta of a bow of a sonic, where you're mm-hmm. you're met you know, with the the part where it's like, oh shit, this is this is what you have to do now. And this is the, the cathartic moment to, to whatever call to action or whatnot. Um, and I do say, like I've jokingly said that the first poem is like the horror film poem and the second poem is the adult film poem. But in a lot of ways, I really kind of, you know, in my, like, I'm such a viewer of like horror and exploitation, just strange movies. Um, and in a way, like I kind of got to this place of being like, wow, I really have some things to figure out <laughs> through watching these films because it's so there's so much about trauma 
so much so. That's exactly it, right? I mean, there, in terms of like the unconscious, you being drawn towards what you needed to see, but the problem always is, oh, we're obviously drawn to repeat our trauma. The issue is, are we seeing that fact and are we dealing with it? And watching a film is a singular experience by yourself. You need another person there to talk about what it is you're seeing or trying to reenact. But the film itself, you're drawn towards the what the films tap into besides the shadow self that we see explored so directly in horror films and in erotic films, of course. Um the taboo um desire so you know side side that we want to not look at directly um but we're tapping into like the collective unconscious right there in art right so like we're seeing right there oh how can i how where where are our myths overlapping and how are we working it out collectively i mean um the greek the Greeks alone were so obsessed with tragedy and they loved tragedy and they had such a vibrant society, right? Okay. Apparently, you know, they had such a thriving society yet that they were so drawn to um, tragedy as a form. Uh, there's, yes, we look to movies to see the unconscious, but we are not, how conscious we are of that fact, I think makes a big difference or how we're interacting with it. Like you said, it became a symptom. It wasn't a process of discovery anymore. You're using right. it as a crutch. You're using it like yes. an addiction, right? So there's that symptomatic. 100%. Like, I think that word using it as an addiction is a, a really, really kind of spot on. <laughs> um, reading an assessment of that, like, I 100%, just kind of allowing. I don't even know, giving myself into just repeated viewing experiences and just, you know, in some ways it kind of became, I think there was a point where I like, you know, addiction to it where I was like, is this a self-destructive thing? Um, and then mm -hmm. once looking at what, you know, self-destruction means and self-destructive behaviors mean for me, I was like, yes, I'm encountering this and continuously encountering it. And encountering it in the same way where it's like i i am deleting the self right the self is disappearing self is is entering this when the day won't start kind of uh time structure of just continuously you know watching images like rapidly shown through light at, at you constantly over and over and over again um these like desensitization um trance like states and i i even in the performances of the piece, I, I try to kind of not only go into a trance-like state, but to kind of have the reader enter that as well. Throughout, there's many ways that you watch a film. Mm -hmm. And we, act, we come to an understanding of the speaker through it. Mm -hmm. You know, even I watched Zombie 1979 with you in the living room. Right. And then we, you know, an earlier part where you're like, I watch Halloween 17 times in a week or whatever. Um, but, but then even the watching zombie and part of it is sometimes with the films is the one part where I, I can't like 
piece together a chronology it's it's not that important to me in that sense but there's a sense of like you know when when like the worst stuff happens with your dad like a film was playing or a film was just watched um and and so like to me that is incredibly important because it kind of colors the rest of the watching right like there are ways of i like that you brought up there are ways of watching films you know with somebody it's a totally different viewing experience as opposed to watching it like by yourself at night <laughs> but the same things may happen um but also i think this goes back to this kind of like understanding of like when the day won't start what that means and it's like sometimes these films are happening at these moments where i'm i'm writing about you know very specific things that that happened um and it's easy to put a kind of roadblock in front of that by saying you know i watched erotic nights of the living dead <laughs> you know um in some ways it's like distracting first of mm-hmm. all it's distracting because it can be kind of funny and coy um two it's distracting um the speaker because they're entering into this space of just not nothing that happened before is continuing after that point and there are some points in the you know double poem or the double feature where you know it's just a long list of like i watch or i watched or you know film after film after film um and there are points where it it kind of confuses the film for place you know for places um like the last house on dead end street and the last house on the left these become actual sites and places um for goal to kind of exist in and you know in a lot of ways to continue to exist in and i collect blu-rays and a lot of the times the blu-rays are they come in these boxes that are very much house-like you know they're in slip cases they're how ha- like they use they use the word housed in a slip case um and so sometimes it's it's hard to see these objects and not and not have a kind of real you know sensory um cerebral connection um especially because you know my father and i we would you know dub these horror films on the tape and you know write little reviews and do like video art i mean like make art for the cases and stuff and they were housed in a cabinet <laughs> so um and that's why the last part is called one of the last parts is called haunted cabinet um because that's they all were in this like little waxy cabinet that I that's amazing because right there's this there on one hand the films are being used to numb and to avoid and on the other hand they're the bridge between the self now and the longing of the child to to the person that they loved so much and had this incredible connection with, but also probably a lot of like shame and anger and resentment towards. Right. And um, so the fact that they're also like horror and erotic films, I mean, that's just Freud's going like, (laughs) (laughs) Freud's clapping in his grave. Um, Yeah. So (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's right. So it's all, I think, I think what I'm saying as we wind down here is that like what I admire so much about this book and why I think it's so important is that you're bringing into the conversation of the book, all these multifarious avenues of what it means 
to deal with the psyche and to express in art and to like interact with art as we grow up you know and how how integral it is to our relationships with other people and how it does keep them alive a little bit you know i think like having that like insane saturation and obsession with film is really to to keep the dead alive and i think ghoul right what is what is a ghoul right what's a ghoul but like one who's robbing graves and keeping exactly. the dead instead of the film keeping the dead alive i i think that i mean and especially as the order as i age um I very much see like film as kind of little compartments of time, time travel. Mm-hmm. I really kind of uncovered that and working on this piece because like I'll be watching a film and I'll just go somewhere totally out else, you know, like I'll be watching it. But, and this is also something I kind of wanted to portray in the double feature where you'll be watching a movie, but you know, something just right out of your view is like, streaming and it's your you know like can be like a film reel going and it's just memory that you're like thinking about or not even thinking about like but encountering in your your mind and sometimes you know it just goes right by you just like the flickering image of the film and other times it's you know it's it's press pause because it's going to be there for a long time you know it's going to be a uh frozen you know frozen scene I mean, there's a lot of discussion about how film uh, changed the way that our minds worked, the way that we dream, the way that we talk about the psyche in general, the freeze frames, the, you know, the, um, I mean, there it is, the living image. It seems as if it's a living image in front of us, but, and so of course it, it's interesting what, what, when you were just speaking about it thinking about how the unconscious is stirred when interacting with film is that yeah there's this other film running in of the unconscious <laughs> the unconscious film during the film there's the unconsciousness of the film itself we could even that's sort of like that'd be an interesting thing to look into um yeah but, i mean I, and oh go ahead sorry no no go ahead <laughs> Well, I mean, I typed this question into the chat. Yeah, Do you think the Ed- theater is a place for the unconscious to peer through the window of fantasy? Window I of mean, fantasy. the word theater, there, the spectacle, fantasy can be a hindrance to living. Um, mm. If you get too caught up in fantasy, well, it's funny because then you were listening to Don Quixote, and there's a great, there's a great. Um, about fantasy uh but right if like what i guess indulging the wish or indulging uh a fantasy that will never come true instead of seeing what is true and what what you do have you know like always fantasizing about the perfect lover for example but not acknowledging that you have a perfectly wonderful lover already like that for example um, at the same time, fantasy is so important to being alive and in existence and the pleasure of being alive and the imagination. Um, but but your question, I think, is too more about is the theater a place to look at fantasy? So I, the way I take it, and this reminds me of moments in my life where a film made me realize something about myself 
mm-hmm. like while I was watching it. And I, I wasn't even, that wasn't even like consciously on my mind, but I was a kind of a, maybe because it's a, a derided season, but uh, watching the very end of True Detective season two, where Vince Vaughn is like going through the desert. He has like a pocket of like diamonds and he's like about to live his dream life. And then he just dies like in the middle of the desert. Shit. Like, I was like, I need to move to Vermont. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I felt it like, like viscerally, you know, like I, I wasn't thinking about it at that moment. And, but to me that, that was, to me, the, the wind, your question is the window of fantasy. So I'm like, I peer through it back into myself, maybe uncover. I feel like, and even like with your book, the, like the black pages of like, the lights going dark. I still feel a lot of times when I'm in a theater that I am like utterly alone. When you have like the big screen, the big speakers, like you feel completely in in the film. You can, and I feel like in the, when that like works most beautifully is when you are experiencing it almost as you're within the film. Deals with the problem of like trying to find a film that will let you peer through to what you're you need it's, like sometimes it feels like the films without commentary is sometimes like it failed in that regard or something so like there's another one you know that has to be like yeah we watch halloween like 50 times in the book right but in that i think that you know in the structure of the double feature poem that's i mean it's kind of the shock of the the second part you know the shock of the volta or whatever where it's like these yeah i searched for films over and over again and who knew it was going to be like through the looking glass this adult film about like basically a haunted mansion um i feel like evil dead too is an important one evil dead yeah i mean i think i mean evil dead honestly is one of those films where i feel like that is like if i'm searching for a film that is a that's one that really encapsulates it. And I really powered through the last of the um, uh, double feature uh, pulled up in a house in a really severe winter storm. Hmm. Um, I just watched Evil Dead over and over again and finished writing the book. Wow. <laughs> um, possession. Uh, it's about trauma. Um, it's about finding um, a very old book that when you recite the words within it, which are actually um, words from, I think, uh, the three alien, or maybe like what the alien says, and it came from beyond, or this island Earth, or it came from beyond space or something. I can't remember which film. Um, that's another thing about Evil Dead. It's a lot of call out, callbacks to other horror films, which I really appreciate. It's very referential. Um, but it's also a very sad film. Like, it's about these... Um, young kind of disenfranchised people going out to a cabin in the woods to kind of get away from everything and then all these horrors and traumas follow them there um, as this evil force and you know it takes over that and possesses them it it mutilates their bodies Um, it it kind of changes their personalities Um, Mm. You become to rely on it. You need it more. You need to consume the flesh of the other people. Um, 
you, know, you need to kind of spread this throughout this entire tiny cabin. Um, that's really Jesus. intense. It's a really intense film to think about. That way. I mean, it's Both kind of a good analogy for therapy. Yeah. <laughs> Ed Steck, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and talking with mm -hmm. us about your new book, A Place Beyond Shame from Wonder. So, Ed, I'm hoping to end you could read us whatever you wanted from the book to sing us out. The Last House on the Left, directed by Wes Craven, Sean S. Cunningham Films, Lobster Enterprises, The Night Company, 1972. The Last House on Dead End Street, directed by Roger Watkins, Cinematic Release Incorporation, 1977. There's some kind of afternoon that falls into the back of a house outside the length of a day. Somewhere in the rear hallway or the entrance to the room used the least. Instead, this afternoon reflects a microcosm of time that exists in the chronology it derives from. A refraction of only the smallest sliver of a whole. In this afternoon, there is a door that opens in its misalignment. Through this door is a space of another house, one that harbors all the violence, suffering, and shame committed by the inhabitants upon one another and themselves. Here in this afternoon, all nightmares form a body and walk through the misaligned doorway into the house where it's almost always night. A house is a space that demands completion. The mystery of this house is the correct assemblage and sequence of objects, individuals, and events to achieve a state of completion a persistence of an off-kilter afternoon birthing nightmarish creatures to dismember the stability and bodily presence of all inhabitants disrupts assembling and sequencing. <clears throat> in the afternoon, if it remains, it becomes embedded in the time structure of the house even well beyond its physical state. Once a house is abandoned, destroyed, a return to the earth, all of those unachieved instances of completion manifest in the dissociated objects and beings left aside in unwhole agony. Matters haunt. I remember one house like that. A cast of rooms living in a menage of disconnected family. Each inhabitant assembling catered objects in various piles to create a defensive semblance of identity. Each of these inhabitants are stuck in a solid state of stasis, a continuous act of collecting tokens, sigils, and artifacts to trap and capture the floating remnants of severe shame. To use as defense methods against shameful severity committed by those closest in proximity, not unlike a distance attack or a psychically inflicted cerebral wound, the house doesn't have filmic grain structure, bit rate, monochromatic blocking, or post-restoration information level increases. Houses have rooms, walls, and corridors. Houses have an uncanny ability to remove the active presence from an individual, rolling them into a space of existence that is only a remembered act, not a physical space, but one that seeps into the effectability of one's selfhood. A memory of a house is a conduit, 
A memory of a house is a traversable mirror into those forgotten rooms of both known and unknown houses. Carol Clover writes about the house as the terrible place, and, if, and its efficacy is a vehicle for redistributing shame and trauma. A house is a chain. A house is a chamber. A house is a cataclysmic pod. A psychically inflicted cerebral wound. A psychically inflicted cerebral wound. A psychically inflicted cerebral wound. If you say it three times in a mirror, it still haunts you for the rest of your life anyway. Beyond the Door, directed by Ovidio G. S. Nidus and Robert Barrett, Film Ventures International, 1974. Dracula directed by Todd Browning, Universal Pictures, 1931. The Addiction, directed by Abel Ferreira, October Films, 1995. I watch you fade out of your human body. I watch your new body coagulate like an inverted act of refusal. The rot within caked your flesh. Its new function, function wasn't, its new function wasn't to survive, but to persist persist in a state of prolonged existence. Your new body wasn't dead or living. You were undead. I watched you open the door at the last house to reveal your new body. Bones like twigs rushing pocked flesh off as nerves, veins, arteries desperately clung together as your face, your face sagging tightly back onto the skull. No eyes left, only gray pockets pointing downward at elbows, wrists, knees, joints, all become scabbed nubbins, lacquered and creaking in movement. As you utter a semblance of familiar sound, your face, your f -f face cracks, powdery dead flesh, rains on unbuttoned shirt, showering dead leather skin, all tattoos, smeared, scarred. I stutter, I have an asthma attack, I am in a daze. I am in room with a vampire that was my father. Fear in the Night, directed by Jimmy Sangster, Hammer Films, 1972. Asylum, directed by Roy Ward Baker, Amicus, 1972. From Beyond the Grave, directed by Kevin Connor, Amicus, 1974. Shockwaves, directed by Ken Wiederhorn, Zopix Company, 1977. Amy and I sleep in a tent at Riverside Drive-In Theater in Vandergriff, PA. Ten years ago, we camped at the drive-in. You and I buy some Blu-ray discs, then walk back to camp with corn dogs. It's heaven and you know it. 36 hours of cult cinema later, I wake to Shockwaves 1977, strobing horror at 3.17 a.m. Sleep behavior of disorder in it, you sleepwalk. I unzip the tent, mumbling. My body becomes a valve exhaust system, welcoming cooled air in and out. I somnambulate, of course, into the woods. I get lost, hardcore, drivel, cry, lost amok, loop to our tent. I buy Ray Dennis Steckler discs in early morning hours. I wake up, falling out, I panic, the tent opens. A steady beat I hear as plodding strobes conjure fascists undead from the muck below. I hear my clopping cacophony struck low as I beat feet steadily. I dig into dirt, fucked up around it, 
logs I trip over and knock my head shoulder side to County Road. Next thing, you and I cross the road to Sulphurus Creek Water to hit Flint. No, I'm back at the Riverside Drive-In concession stand ordering dogs, fries, pretzels, knots, fingers, nachos, pickles, fried pickles, pickled pig's feet, pickled eggs, fried sausage wrap eggs, fried cheese, grilled cheese. Look, this is proof I will never stop. Dark food products trip. Following our trip backwards back to our tent, I unzip blaze zone. I remember another drive-in that became a community pool, then an industrial park. It is empty now. My dad snuck in through a pipe. It flooded once. Fuck, I think I am back in the area. A wander, I find new areas away from the last house on the left, 1972. The last house on Dead End Street, 1973. A path that is soft. A landscape traversable to ever-changing forms. I land onto ignite and everlasting flames, forever charring worthless history. I slip on loose time, falling over, I conk my head. Truck headlights shine, service road shadows in my face. I set up camp at a forest at the edge of the drive-in theater. I crash into brush, jaggers, and cans, and snakes, then fall again. Bus windows exhaust smoke, dogs run around. Pulsing stammer beats reverb against a wall of trees I stumble through. In distances from some trees, I see forgotten lake zombies set atop a serene alpinish Appalachian nighttime town. I see a tunnel, a cemetery, a bridge, a sausage factory, a river, a truck with flashlight beam like headlights traces the invisible horizon, and I watch it carve beingness from nothingness. Since this is audio only, I can pretend to be Ed Steck and say, I wrote this book in the Port of John out in the Frick Park and a long roll of toilet paper. And then I buried it for 17 years. And then my cat dug it up, brought it home, and then I sent it over to Ben Pease to top set it up. And then he sent it to me, and I read it on the shitter one night, edited the thing. And that's how I got the book. Thank you all for reading.